all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Hey, great to have you with me. This is Jim Fossone with VeteransRadio.org. We're glad to have you aboard. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programming that you're going to enjoy. You can always find out more about Veterans Radio at VeteransRadio.org or on Facebook. Uh, we post uh, new podcasts every week, so there's new stories every week as well as our AM and FM programming. So uh, keep in touch. Let us know what you want to hear. And we couldn't do this without the help of our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We're going to start with a, an interview done with Royce Williams, who recently received the Navy Cross for some heroics during the Korean War as a pilot. It was super secret for many, 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 many years, and uh, only now is getting some recognition. Uh, listen to this, and you'll find out why it had to be kept super secret for over 50 years. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Navy Captain Retired Royce Williams. Royce, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Now, Royce has been retired a long time. He's currently a 97-year-old California resident, uh, and he is back in the news because his... uh, Recent, recently was awarded the Navy Cross for certain combat valor in Korea back in 1952 of all times. So uh, let's let's start here though, Royce. How did a nice kid like you from uh, South Dakota, uh, Wilmot, South Dakota, end up in the Navy for a career? I always get a kick out of these guys who live in states where there isn't an ocean anywhere nearby. But they go into the Navy and stay for a career. Well, uh, I was enticed by, I suppose, a movie. But I had an early flight uh, in an airplane when I was four. I had a relative flag out of Fargo, North Dakota, for the weather service, which did amazing things with open cockpit biplanes back in that day, uh, going to extreme altitudes for the equipment he had. 32,000 feet or such and uh, without uh, communication and instrumentation sometimes be above the clouds and you would have to search for blue sky somewhere to uh, get back down uh, often leaving him in Canada but uh, (laughs) my brother and I both started uh, early on thinking about what next (laughs) some years hence uh, and uh, carrier aviation was uh, a a large part of the goal well it was Uh, certainly brand new at that time and and awful uh, it took nerves of steel to fly at that point Uh, was that a family trait as well 
My dad was World War One, and uh, one tremendous guy. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. My early ventures were just kind of as a young wild man running around damming up a creek to make a swimming pool, uh, pond, uh, building wiki-ups, and uh, fighting with swords uh, following the Crusade movie. Uh, I had a lot of excitement and fun and freedom. Well, you were looking for adventure, and you certainly found it in the Navy. Um, as I said, he's a retired captain, so he uh, retired out uh, from that and uh, did 70 missions in Korea and 110 missions in Vietnam. Um, so plenty of uh, miles and hours logged there, uh, Captain Royce. Williams. I, I don't know if that adds up properly. I think my total combat missions were 227. Okay, great. That's uh, even better to get the uh, record correct. So um, let's talk about the the uh, dogfight uh, in Korea that kind of brought this back into attention after uh, it was kept confidential for so many years. Uh, tell us about this uh dogfight in North Korea with uh, what I think was seven Soviet fighters and you shot down four of them ultimately uh, yes uh, we were rather new amongst the carriers to arrive in the Korean War the Navy pretty much owned the eastern half of uh, North Korea meeting responsibility and uh it extended, of course, all the way to the Yalu River, which was the border between China and uh, Korea, North Korea, and uh, also a portion of it, Soviet Union and uh, North Korea. And uh, some of the juicier targets were a little bit out of our range and uh, deserved to be hit to uh, carry out our responsibility. So Admiral Jocko Clark, who was on the Missouri, designed a uh, mission that we were on. And so the uh, morning of the 2nd of November, 1952, we arrived up off Chonjin, a major city in North Korea, about 100 miles south of Vladivostok. And so being at that uh, location permitted us to hit uh, targets otherwise left pretty much alone. And I was on the first mission of the day in good weather and uh, conducted strike against manufacturing and uh, warehousing in the uh, Horyong city. located pretty much right on the Yellow River across from the Soviet Union, uh, followed by strikes from uh, two other carriers. I was in an air wing on the Oriskany, but we also had two other uh, carriers plus maybe 20-some escort uh, ships, including the uh, Missouri, the battleship. Uh, and uh, 
covered oiler. We had a cruiser, the Helena, that had an experimental, uh, well, at least its first mission for the NSA, a team of uh, experts in radar and communications with uh, Russian-speaking personnel. But this strike, not only but for all three carriers, uh, was pretty disturbing to the Soviet Union. We were close by uh, bombing targets, and uh, they got rattled and launched a lot of airplanes and a lot of chatter of the communications going on. So uh, I arrived back from that attack and was notified to get a quick lunch and come back because I was going on the next combat air patrol. Now you're you're a twenty you're a twenty seven year old pilot at that point, right? Yes. I mean, this is uh, f- flying into that space is uh, you know was re- relatively new and talk to people about uh, the the jet that you were flying, um, which uh, today the, most folks wouldn't even know the know, know the name of. Well, I was flying the latest in carrier of jet aviation uh, for the you know, the Navy uh, carriers. It was an F-9F-5 Panther, and uh, it had capability of carrying external weaponry, uh, bombs and rockets, etc. But it had internal guns of 420 millimeters in the nose of the airplane. And uh, as such, uh, we could seek a variety of, of uh, targets. And though we had an air-to-air capability, our assignment was primarily air-to-ground of trucks and trains and um, any type of logistic uh, problem, bridges and train tracks and and also closer support for our troops on the ground. Well, that's what makes this uh, dogfight with the MiGs so interesting uh, in many regards. As you say, the, the Russians weren't real happy, the Soviet Union wasn't real happy with um, you guys flying that close on the first mission and striking some things, and, and then we get into uh, the second mission, and, and they, de- they decide they're not going to let you go undisturbed. Tell us about that. Uh, you're, you're correct. <clears throat> we were not at war with the Soviet Union. We did not expect any uh, threat to come out of this uh, strike against North uh, Korea. But uh, on the other side of the river, people were making up their minds to evidently not let the United States get away with this. So I didn't expect any type of actual engagement on my combat air patrol mission. Uh, we were launched, and by this time, bad weather had moved in, and we were facing a blizzard. And the ship was bouncing around quite a bit in low ceiling of clouds. And uh, we launched and rendezvoused under 400 feet. And then we're climbing through the clouds uh, with uh, our direction and altitude control um, 
by our combat information center aboard the Oriskany. And in this climb through the clouds to on top of them at 12,000 feet, we were advised of inbound bogies, meaning unidentified uh, airplanes headed toward the task force. So we were aware of that while climbing and once on top and in the clear, we could see seven contrails headed directly at us. And uh, these were coming directly out of the Vladivostok area, which was not very far away from us. And, and we're talking to Captain Royce Williams, who recently was awarded the Navy Star for this upcoming dogfight. These seven Soviet MiG-15s fighter jets are coming your way. Uh, you start out with four uh, planes in your squad. Uh, two have to turn back uh, because of some mechanical problems, and you and a wingman now have yourself faced with Soviet MiGs. Which uh, tell us a little bit about their maneuverability and air-to-air capability as compared to what you're flying in the Panther. Well, at this time in history, this was the world's best fighter airplane. Um, I had a great airplane in that it was a Grumman Tough built and uh, good capabilities uh, within the limits not to match the MiGs uh, in aerial combat. Um, we didn't really expect to be combating them, but uh, as it turned out, uh, they chose to fight, and it happened. Yeah, you you and your wingman were in that fight. Uh, I think I've read that it was about a 30-minute dogfight. Uh, tell us what went on and kind of what's going on in your mind at that point. Well, these uh, contrails flew over us. They were extreme altitude, I would guess 50,000 feet at least. Once they passed over us, they turned back north, and I thought probably heading home. And I assumed they were Soviets out of Vladivostok. But I was instructed to... uh, climb to intercept if possible, if it came to that, but to be ready. And so I immediately charged and fired my guns and saw that all my fighting capability was ready to go. And my wingman and I climbed, keeping them in sight, and uh, got to 26,000 feet, and they were by this time about halfway between us and Vladivostok. And they split into two groups and uh, dived out of the contrails, me thinking they were probably going to go in the land. But I was wrong. And in short order, I saw four of them in loose formation attacking me and uh, all of them firing. Yeah, and then from the carrier, as I understand it, the, the, the original thought was, Hey, just just have the Navy jets protect the the U.S. warships, and the commanders on the carrier thought, well, don't engage. The Soviets aren't going to engage, but the, all that thinking down on the on the ship was wrong, wasn't it? Uh, entirely correct. Yes, uh, I didn't expect them. I saw the airplanes, and once they flew over, and I saw they were bigs, <clears throat> I knew they were not friendly. 
so I was prepared for what eventually happened, but I didn't expect it. But when they came in and shooting, I knew I could not, should not run away, and I maneuvered uh, rather hard and ended up right on uh, the uh, in firing range on the tail of the number four airplane in that group of four. The other three were coming in from the other direction, so seven in the fight. But uh, I just fired a short burst of 20 millimeter, all four, and uh, it started smoking and dropped out of formation. And at that point, my wingman chose to follow him uh, instead of sticking with me. And I uh, continued to trail the uh, remaining three as they climbed uh, abruptly, amazingly, uh, with ease well above me and reversed to come back and uh, fire at me. And so while that was happening, um, I was going to fire at the number three guy that just lost his wingman, but I saw the other two, the lead of the whole uh, flight of seven, uh, heading directly in and firing. And I uh, trained my uh, weapon system on them, and when I thought they were in range, I fired a short burst, and uh, that airplane stopped firing and did a turn off to the left while I noticed his wingman now in and shooting at me, and I uh, now trained my guns on him and a short uh, burst. He quit firing and didn't maneuver and slid right underneath me, uh, indicating to me that he was probably dead. Uh, as you th- reflect back on this, uh, Captain Williams, how much of this uh, do you attribute to training, good luck, good equipment, or the grace of God? Well, I'll put uh, the influence of God number one. Uh, I was trained uh, for this sort of thing. Uh, in that we were going to war, and our mission was primarily the support of our troops on the ground, uh, we did very little in the way of trading for air-to-air combat. But I had always had an interest in this, and on my own, with my wingman, uh, did do some practice. Um, it, in, on, is, is, th- as this event unfolded, as this event unfolded, uh, Royce, over the 30 minutes or so, um, <laughs> I believe I've read you used up all the ammunition you had. That's right. And uh, so this ended at the right time because you were you were getting uh, out of ammunition. But this also was uh, you know you you took on a lot of shots. Uh, uh, your your plane had something like 263 holes on it when it finally got back to the ship. Does that sound about right? Oh, yes, that, uh, my plane captain went out with a grease pencil and circled each one and counted them, and that 263 is the number he reported. I mean, it, you know, he, the captain here used all 760 rounds of his 20-millimeter cannon shells on, on the uh, 
uh, on his airframe and, uh, again, with the grace of God and training and good equipment, uh, came out on the positive side of that. Um, well, but it wasn't over yet. It, you, you had to get back to the carrier. That was a little harrying as well, it sounds like. I realize that uh, this fight took 35 minutes. A usual air-to-air flight is seconds or maybe a few minutes at most, and uh, never one airplane against uh, being so outnumbered. So this was a different type of thing. Uh, I was there for a long time, and I fired uh, only when I had gun solution in range, so I wasn't wasting anything. And uh, the I ran out of ammunition when I had an airplane smoking, and it uh, was descending, not maneuvering. And uh, I think it eventually the uh, is the plane that uh, the pilot ejected from, and uh, I'm sure was not recovered in time to save his life. One of the interesting things, uh, before I get about the confidentiality of this dogfight, go back and tell us about trying to get this uh, back on the carrier uh, because of (laughs) fuel and holes in it and uh, decreasing weather conditions. Tell us about that, because quite frankly, I can't imagine landing on a carrier. Well, the MiG that uh, hit me with a 37-millimeter, it exploded in the accessory section of the engine and uh, destroyed the uh, hydraulics, put the airplane pretty much out of rig, severed the uh, cables to the rudder, uh, so... I was left primarily with an elevator, which gives you the capability of going up and down. It's uh, very limited as far as turn. And the guy that uh, did that uh, after I was hit, uh, I happened to be pointed in the direction of the task force, and the clouds that were delivered the uh, blizzard. We this fight took place in uh, clear air, but I headed for that and the guy settled right behind me at perfect range to shoot me out of the sky, and I jammed the stick using my available uh, elevators, which did work, and I would zoom up and then down, um, doing it as drastically as I could, which uh, caused the guy to put a bunch of bullets over me, then under me, and then over me, and I uh, just kept dodging and got lucky and and uh, gave credit to God and I. I thought I reached the clouds and uh, they were very dense. I got in there and we lost sight of each other. And uh, my attention now came to think about how I'm going to get back aboard a carrier. And that wasn't easily done in this situations. Uh, both it took your skill, but the sh- the captain's skill on the on the carrier uh, as well to get you kind of lined up because you didn't have all the normal controls you would have had for an aircraft uh, carrier landing. Oh, exactly right. Uh, I knew what the bottoms of the clouds are, so I carefully on my own descended under instrument conditions and. Uh, 
gave up the idea of parachuting because I wouldn't be rescued in time to save my life under the uh, ocean conditions. So uh, I arrived uh, and coming in sight of the task force, and they were at um, general quarters, which means for those who are in the perimeter and uh, have anti-aircraft capability are free to shoot at anything that is unidentified, they feel it's a threat. And I hadn't been coordinated to where they knew I was a friendly, and unfortunately, our ships uh, fired at me. But my commanding officer had just been launched, really to be my relief and uh, engage if it were to happen. Didn't didn't happen, but that was the idea. And he saw what was going on, and he uh, had him to cancel the firing. Well, and then I just worked on studying my problem, seeing uh, what I would have to contend with in the way of flight, and discovered that uh, anything below 170 knots in the airplane would stall out. So uh, having to work with two hands on the stick because of the out-of-rig conditions of the airplane, I uh, experimented to see what I could do in the way of control to get aboard the ship. Um, so I kept my speed up, and when the, the uh, aircraft carrier was ready to receive me, which meant that they'd had a lot of airplanes in the uh, area where I'm going to land, but they were there preparing to launch another flight against Orion. So they had to clear all those out of the way because this was a straight deck, not an angle deck as we have the carriers today. They had to move it all forward. So when that was done and they gave me the signal, Charlie, meaning you're clear to land, I was uh, somewhat in the right area to start my approach, which would not be a turning approach, which was the difficulty I had. So I was lined up, and then when the carrier was in the wind, and I'm talking to them about my speed, and they said, uh, any speed I wanted, because they had 30 knots available that the ship could make in its own speed, and then there was probably about that amount of natural wind in the storm. So the captain said, bring them in any speed he wants. Well, and let, let, let me let me explain that for the for the non-aviator types here, Royce. You couldn't get slow enough. You couldn't get your airspeed down to where it should have been for a normal landing. You were going faster than you should have. Uh, but but accommodations were made because if you stalled, if you went too low, the plane would stall out and plunge into this uh, you know frigid uh, ocean, and that would be the end of it. So. You and the carrier had to kind of work together based on the condition of of the uh, uh, plane to be able to get on board. And I, I read somewhere that uh, the ship had to kind of turn a little bit to help line you up because you didn't have you as you said you had up and down control. You kind of didn't have side to side control, so they had to help out in that regards. Yes, that's right. Uh, I was pretty much able to maintain the um, altitude control. Um, but as far as lighting, uh, I wasn't able. And I told them that. And so 
the uh, commanding officer of the carrier as a pilot, and he understood the problem. And as I got in close, pointing at the ship, but not lined up to make a landing, he turned the ship to line it up with me just as I needed it, and uh, I made a nor- pretty much normal landing. Now, you caught the first wire then, right? Normal landing, you hit the first wire, all was good. Was that how it worked? Well, the first wire was <laughs> low. We uh, pinpoint to the perfect landing would be the third cross-deck pennant uh, wire, and that's the one I did catch. <laughs> any any stop's a good stop, let's face it. Uh, you got it. Now, it, it, again, there was no expectation that you that the Navy would have to take on these Russian MiGs, and so this became kind of a almost almost a uh, I'll call it publicity, but that's not, probably not the right word. Problem with, geez, we don't want to drag the Soviet Union into the Korean War. So the decision was made, I guess as this went all the way up to the Secretary of Defense and the President, that that this dogfight had to be kept secret. And and they explained that, I guess, to you right from the get-go. Well, I, I wasn't dealing with people at that level at that time, but uh, they knew about it right away and had great uh, interest to fill in the blanks and we're trying to find out from the ship what happened. The ship didn't know what happened, but the people on the Helena, on that cruiser, had these people uh, from the time they took off from the their base until they said the remnant came back. And uh, so they followed it all, but they were the only ones besides the Russians that really knew what was was happening. But uh, on our side, uh, because they wanted information immediately, our intelligence officer, poor boy, had to make up a story, and it wasn't (laughs) true. But I was told that uh, our report to Admiral Briscoe, the ship, this was our last uh, online combat for that period. We were about to go into a base at Yokosuka, Japan, and uh, rearm, uh, get the supplies, and for some of us to uh, uh, on our opportunity. Well, I was told to uh, on on uh, getting there as soon as possible. Report to Admiral Briscoe, who was the senior naval officer of the, the Western Pacific. I did. And uh, on arrival, I was guided to his office, and the door closed behind me, and uh, greeted. And then he said, where did the Oriskany, my carrier, get that information, which was made public, which was not true, which the intelligence officer, under great pressure, um, made up. He he knew a little bit about it. They were in our ready room, which has a um, screen and information passed from our Compact Information Center, but they had very little to report, and uh, so he knew a fight was engaged, and he eventually gave uh, into pressure and went to 
the uh, center on the carrier where the communications were set up with Washington and uh, made that false report. Well, ultimately, the, you, you got debriefed, and as I say, it uh, all the way up, I understand you had uh, got to get uh, meetings with or interviewed by however you want to put it, and not only a bunch of the admirals, but the Secretary of Defense and, and also the uh, President Eisenhower. Um, all along the way, they're saying, hey, we don't want to pull the Soviets into this, keep this classified, and it was classified for some Geez, what, what are we at now? Almost 70 years or something. Um, and, and in 1953, a year later, you received the Silver Star for this uh, um, engagement, uh, although it only mentions uh, three kills. The, the fourth wasn't known until Russian records were released in the, in the 1990s, apparently. But how does a how does a young hotshot pilot who's going to have a long career in the the navy and reach the the ranks of captain? How do you keep this secret? Well, I was told, <laughs> and I obeyed, and uh, it uh, was a bit of a problem because I knew what was being said about the whole thing was not true. And, of course, uh, it would have an influence on my career if they knew the facts and it uh, became well-known, whereas it was more or less a brief moment in time, not true, and more or less forgotten. Well, and you kept this secret not only professionally but personally. Uh, I understand uh, only after it was declassified and after some efforts to uh, increase the uh, recognition from a silver star to maybe as high as a Medal of Honor, but ultimately settling on the Navy Cross. Did you get an opportunity to uh, tell this whole story to your family, including your wife? Just true. Just true. Uh, yeah. Did they believe it or did they say, oh, granddad, oh, dad, we know you're just telling another fib? <laughs> no, I just told my wife and. Uh, she was more or less shocked, and her comment was, oh, Royce. <laughs> that did it. Well, it's probably better she didn't know and worry all those years about uh, the, the next yeah. mission, because you flew a lot of missions after that as well. Yes. You, you spent a long career in the Navy and serving the country, and obviously now you've had a long time to be in retirement and, and enjoy that. What did you learn from that experience of testing yourself in North Korea that, that maybe you'd pass on to other people as a little pearl of wisdom? Well, I probably learned what I would have had it not happened, so maybe sharpened the learning experience. Um, I was a professional and uh, dedicated and uh, whatever the mission, I think I always tried to do my best. Uh, we still had a lot of war ahead of us, and it was different, but uh, in support of the troops and all, uh, it was important. Yeah, and, and I think today sometimes we don't hang on to some of those uh, rocks, core rock-solid values like doing the mission, being a professional, 
living up to your word. If you're told to keep it confidential, you keep it confidential. Uh, those are those are all good lessons for everybody to learn, even today, I believe, don't you? Yes, of course. And, of course, it deepened my faith in God. Absolutely. I do want to ask, after all these years, and I know there was some effort to get it upgraded to the Medal of Honor and, and uh, uh, just this year in 2023 here, um, you've received the Navy Cross. Um, talk to us about what receiving this second highest award for valor in combat uh, uh, felt like to you and, and what you think it uh, symbolizes. Well, I had been teased with the Medal of Honor, um, and when it didn't make it because of a turndown in the Senate, my congressman got in touch with the Secretary of the Navy, who miraculously came out and visited with me for about an hour and a half and came well prepared to have his questions answered and uh, he went away believing there had been a miscarriage in justice and he had the authority to correct that and in very short time a few weeks following that he made up his mind that the uh, Navy owed me a higher medal and he saw to it in a wonderful ceremony it was just uh, amazing. It would have made a lot of difference. I well, would have made quite some difference in my career, I imagine, had I been given that credit while I was on active duty. But uh, it was not so. So whatever happened after that time had to be based on the circumstances and the performance at that time. No, it, and, and there are many stories uh, of valor that probably should get the nation's highest award, but don't for any variety of reasons. But I always think it's important to get recognized on these sort of things, like for the Navy Cross, so that your larger community, whether that's your uh, where you live now, back in South Dakota, the family, uh, other naval aviators, so that the larger community can share in that recognition and, and based on what I saw from the ceremony there there was a lot of community uh, support and recognition uh, for the Navy Cross ceremony I, I think that must have felt really positive for you well yes indeed I had a, a lot of friends out in the uh, community at the event and uh, quite a few that I did not know, but they were all supportive, and I've had follow-on conversations where it seemed to mean a lot to them, probably not as much as to me, but uh, it impressed a lot of people. And with that, our lessons, think about what you learned, if it seems to make an impact. And there were active duty personnel there and they're not knowing what they are facing but who knows they may, uh, may call upon it and if this means anything to them they'll be as prepared and in the best equipment that uh, their country has for them 
so they may get their turn. Well, I also got to say, uh, Captain Royce Williams, you were, are undoubtedly, at 97 years old, the best-looking captain in uniform for that age. You lie. <laughs> so I'm sure it was fun to be with all those uh, all those folks who were actually looking up to you. They're 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 not your peers. They're all younger. They're they're all from a different era, but looking at you going. Man, there, there's a man's man. There's an aviator's aviator. And, and again, uh, well-deserved. The story was untold for over 50 years. So we're glad, uh, Captain Royce Williams, uh, that uh, you got a chance to receive the Navy Cross and tell a little bit of this story to our listeners here on Veterans Radio. Well, I'm pleased to do so. Well, you don't get to talk to a 97-year-old Navy Cross recipient, hero pilot, really quite a dogfighter. Um, so we ran a little long. I appreciate you listening in for that whole thing. Let's have a few more words from our sponsors. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at one 800 693 4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Well, we have a special program here on Veterans Radio today. I want to bring on uh, Army veteran Mark Aldridge and uh, VA doctor, Dr. Kishore Patel. We're going to talk about some therapies and approaches used by the VA today. Uh, that might be something you haven't bumped into before, but maybe you should, and that involves acupuncture and whole health. So, gentlemen, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank, thank you. Happy thank to be much, here. Jim. Well, Mark, uh, let's start with you. You've been on Veterans Radio before. We're talking to Mark Aldridge. He retired from the U.S. Army in April of 2021. He's now a 100% uh, rated disabled veteran by the VA after three combat tours over a 14-year period. And uh, we've had him on before to actually to talk about his business. He's a he's an entrepreneur. He has two entities, one called J-Dog Junk Removal and Hauling and Demolition in Plymouth, Michigan, and also just started J-Dog Carpet Cleaning and Flooring Care in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lured me into this topic. He said, hey, have you ever talked about anybody who's got uh, acupuncture before? So why don't, why don't we start there, Mark? Explain to us. What medical conditions kind of brought you to, hey, I'm willing to give that a try? Well, Jim, um, it all started out a few years ago. I had filed a claim for some uh, neuropathy and uh, plantar fasciitis. And the claim had actually got denied. And so I resubmitted, and part of the final approval process was going to final all-end CMP exam. And that was with Dr. Patel. And so once I got to the CMP, I was 
kind of nervous. I didn't know which direction this was going to go. And Dr. Patel and I started just having a conversation. He looked at the documentation and he goes, I don't quite understand how this got denied, all the documentation, the paperwork is there. There's clearly an issue. And as we were talking, I was telling him about some of the other issues and um, some of the other ratings that I had for um, other disabilities. And he was kind of looking through it. And when we were talking about my back, my neck, other issues with my knee and um, just overarching disabilities that I had, he kind of mentioned, well, I'm currently doing this program, this battlefield acupuncture that you'd be a good candidate for. Why don't you reach out for a consult and let's see if we can relieve some of that pain. So about a month or two went by. I had reached out, done a call, consult, and had my first therapy session. And within seconds of first needle going into my ear, I had relief. And it took my pain that was normally around 8, 9, sometimes even a 10, down to a 3, 4 in that first process. When I got up from first treatment, my gait had not completely cleared up, but my gait on how I could walk was substantial in, um, in just being more pronounced and not having to kind of walk with a limp and um, shrug over all the time. So that's how I kind of got involved. And so we did this for probably with the battlefield acupuncture of the ears for about maybe six, eight months. And as we were talking through at our sessions, he said, I'm also doing full body acupuncture. Why don't we try and focus on some other areas and try this out? I I'm, I really do not like needles, so I'm very skeptical also about holistic approaches. I don't like needles. And so I said, all right, let, let's give it a try. I'll suck it up and Let's try it, and we've been doing this ever since with the whole body, and it's just helped me dramatically. My pain management has gone down from a two or three, um, I'm sorry, from an eight or nine down to a two or three, and I can go weeks, if not um, a month or more, without having another session and having a low pain ratio. And I'm a big person that kind of has an addictive personality, so I didn't want to go on pills and uh, be subject to every day taking a pill and still having that same amount of pain. This was an opportunity that I can now have less pain and I don't have to take pills. Well, let me bring in uh, Dr. Kishore Patel here. He got his medical degree from Ohio State University College of Medicine. He has been practiced for more than 20 years now. He's an internist in Ann Arbor at the Veterans Affairs Ann Arbor Healthcare System. And uh, first off, Doctor, you, boy, it's hard to get it, testimonials like that from uh, you know big strong veterans who cry when you put a needle by them. But uh, <laughs> you can't tell us how tell us how you got involved in looking at acupuncture as a possible uh, method for pain relief and symptom relief. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's been a, a, a kind of a fascinating course. You know, my, my, my background has always been strong in the sciences. Uh, you know, my undergraduate was 
was biochemistry and chemical engineering and uh, uh, and and very much steeped in the sciences. But what was unique about the way that I was raised, uh, which uh, you know I had uh, you know of this uh, Indian heritage, um, even though you know I grew up partly in England and partly here. Um, they very much steeped in, in Ayurvedic medicine. So looking at kind of the holistic kind of approach. And, and so that's always appealed to me. And uh, even in my traditional practice, I've always recommended uh, plant-based uh, foods that decrease inflammation uh, and, and discuss that. Um, in 2016, um, we received a grant to, um, other, I should say the VA received a grant, the whole, the VA, to try to implement other ways to kind of manage pain. And one of the approaches was um, instituted uh, by um, uh, uh, a person that was named um, uh, his, well, Nogier is the original guy in France who, who developed this uh, kind of map. Uh, but um, we also had Dr. Nimnitz, uh, who was uh, part of the Air Force uh, Acupuncture Division, and he had developed a quick uh, approach to helping as many veterans as he could, and we labeled that as something called Battlefield Acupuncture, or BFA, right? BFA. So, uh, and the the term you know uh, even though it does involve needles and there is uh, the five general points um, but the goal was to try to decrease as much pain as we could uh, in our veteran population and as Mark pointed out uh, you know he wanted to avoid medication which is true for many of the veterans that we see we they they want to decrease uh, medications they definitely don't want to get dependent on them and of course that was a little bit at the height of that. Uh, opioid um, uh, um, uh, awareness, right? Uh, and we wanted to decrease the number of opiates, also. So anyway, that was in 2016, and and uh, and and I trained uh, with with his group, um, and we learned about the uh, the battlefield acupuncture, and uh, and then uh, we kind of implemented it at, at at the VA. So really, since 2016, we've been uh, having these clinics, um, but not a lot of advertising, not a lot of veterans, a lot of just word of mouth, and and we had brochures, and and I, I think people would sometimes look at it and go, oh, this involves the ear, um, but it really is uh, the ear um, in terms of acupuncture. You know, we have uh, in, in acupuncture we have something called microsystems, and and uh, so you know people are familiar with scalp acupuncture, hand acupuncture, foot acupuncture. Well, the auricular or the ear is also very rich in terms of signals from the brain and and controlling um, areas of pain. And you can see the whole body represented. I think I've shown Mark. Uh, this map uh, of the ear uh, and all the points on there uh, that that could um, help with pain. So at, in Ann Arbor, we actually took it to another level. So we did start it off with the BFA, and we still have the regular BFA clinics, but we also instituted, which Mark was part of, uh, something called the auricular acupuncture clinic, okay, which actually was more targeting 
different body parts, uh, different body points of pain uh, with that representation of the body on the ear and, and, uh, and, and targeting very specifically uh, areas uh, that were causing discomfort for the veteran. So we instituted that uh, a little bit after starting the BFA uh, and, uh, and with uh, the training as a medical acupuncturist, so a medical acupuncturist or an acupuncturist uh, is allowed to do more than just the BFA, um, we were able to institute uh, these auricular acupuncture clinics and then uh, added to that, which Mark was also part of. So Mark was kind of, uh, what was Somebody, about somebody's, was, somebody's got to be the guinea pig, Dr. Patel, uh, and, and obviously Mark <laughs> Mark Aldridge was uh, just the right guy for that. <laughs> well, he, it's it's he's not, but he's not unique enough. Probably about eighty percent of the veterans we see uh, do get some benefit uh, in terms of the pain relief. But what I was going to say is that he kind of went through that transition. So so he went through. Uh, the BFA, then he was in the auricular where we were targeting, and he will tell you this, we were targeting uh, areas uh, for his neck and shoulder um, and then the knee um, and the low extremity. Uh, and we were doing that on the ear, and he was getting tremendous you know, benefits to that. Uh, and, and then we added uh, the uh, whole body. So BFA, which is just five standard points uh, to mitigate pain, uh, then you can go to the next level, which is an auricular uh, acupuncture clinic, uh, which involves all the body parts. And so you can you can target very quickly, uh, uh, you know, a veteran population that may have pain in multiple areas. Uh, sometimes they can't always get up on the table and be in in certain positions, you know, uh, for the whole body acupuncture, but they can still get tremendous relief of their pain, and then expanding that uh, to also incorporating whole body acupuncture at Ann Arbor, and uh, we've been doing those clinics now for at least a year. We've got two medical acupuncturists. Uh, we've also hired uh, three uh, other acupuncturists that, that are coming on board, one in Canton, two uh, here in Ann Arbor. Actually, I'm sorry, four. One we're going to hire for Toledo. So uh, tremendous opportunities uh, to help uh, veterans with their pain, uh, and really the BFA or the standard uh, initial, uh, we've, we've trained many of the nurses also to do uh, to do that. Uh, in fact, I just trained a whole bunch of physical therapists to do that. Uh, I trained physical therapists in Toledo uh, that that can institute these five points, which have really good landmarks. They don't have to be acupuncturists, uh, and they can just uh, do those focus and help uh, veterans with pain. So that's pretty interesting about how VA has moved into acupuncture for pain relief and some other whole wellness issues. Our interview with the doctor and Mark Aldrich goes on much longer. You can find it on our Veterans Radio podcast. If you go to veteransradio.org and search for it, you'll, you'll find more if you'd like to hear more. Before we run out of time, I want to thank um, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System as, for its continued support of veteransradio.org as well as our VSO sponsors, Vietnam Veterans of America, Chapter 310, Graf O'Hara, VFW Post 423, and the American Legion, Irwin Prescone, Post 46. Uh, again, you can't do this kind of programming. We're coming up on our 1,000th program. We're going to celebrate it on July 9th. We're going to have a little party uh, in the parking lot at uh, Wham Radio on Packard Road in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on out uh, about 4.30 uh, that uh, Sunday. We'd love to have you. So stay tuned 
Thanks for listening in. I'm Jim Fossone, and until next time on VeteransRadio.org, thanks for listening in. I hope you enjoyed Navy Cross recipient Royce Williams and the story on acupuncture. Uh, Always something interesting on Veterans Radio. We're glad you tuned in. Please do so again next uh, week at this time. Join us for the uh, 1,000th show on July 9th. And have a great week, and until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed.